Open your copy of God's Word to Matthew chapter 19. If you have a copy of the scriptures, it was in the back there. It'll be page 824. Matthew 19, we will read the whole chapter. And while you're turning, I'd like to remind you that uh, this is uh, the Dollar for Missions Sunday. And you no doubt saw the basket that's in the foyer out there as you come in. The dollar this week is going to be going for the books for Dominican pastors. And uh, we will be providing them two, two books, one uh, more theological and the other one more practical. But um, this is in their own language, excellent works for them to consult. And we encourage you to uh, give a dollar per person for your family in the, in the missions basket as you leave if you haven't already. So we are, going, we are going to read Matthew chapter 19, the entire chapter, and follow along with me in your copy of God's Word as we do read this. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together Let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command to give us a certificate of divorce, to give a command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, Whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man and his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, Everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been made so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have, been, who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. But the one who is able to receive this, receive it. Then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people. But Jesus said, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. And behold, a man came to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, 
and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, Sir, we have left everything and followed you. See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. May the Lord indeed send his victorious Word abroad to us this morning. So for those of you who are new, my name is Mark. I'm one of the pastors, and I have the privilege of taking us through Matthew chapter 19 this morning. We are making our way chapter by chapter through the gospel according to Matthew about the Lord Jesus Christ. And this morning we come to chapter 19. I've entitled the sermon this morning, How not to come to Jesus. The essence of Christianity is coming to Jesus. In a sense, that's what separates Christianity from every other world religion. Because Christianity isn't first about a system. It's about a person. And Christianity is primarily an invitation to a person. It's about coming to Jesus Christ and entrusting ourselves to him and submitting ourselves to his lordship as revealed in his word. However, not all coming to Jesus is created equal. There are bad reasons to come to Jesus. And in the text this morning in Matthew chapter 19, we see three groups or three people coming to Jesus. In the first part of the chapter, we see the Pharisees coming to Jesus. And then in the middle of the chapter, we see children being brought to Jesus, assuming their parents are probably the ones bringing them. And then we see a rich young man come to Jesus. And what we learn here is two ways not to come to Jesus in the example of the Pharisees and the rich young man 
and one way to come to him in the example of the children. So that's where we're going to go this morning. We're going to look at the two ways not to come to Jesus and the one way to come to him. And what's interesting as we dive in here is that Jesus receives those whom the disciples thought he should reject, namely children. Because they were considered second class and while certainly they were valuable and Jewish people would have considered their value and known their value, nevertheless, they weren't to be prioritized in the way Jesus seemed to be prioritizing them. And while Jesus receives those whom the disciples thought he should reject, he also rejects those whom the disciples thought he should receive, namely wealthy religious people. What is going on here? He is turning the expectations of everyone upside down. He is someone who is receiving the humble and rejecting the proud. The children turn out to be much closer to the kingdom than most expected, and the Pharisee and the rich man are much further away than many would have guessed. And so this morning, let's look at these three groups and see how not to come to Jesus and how to come to Jesus. First, let's look at the Pharisees. Here's my first point. Don't come to Jesus insincerely. Don't come to Jesus insincerely. That's what we see here. Matthew wants us to know as he writes this story about the Pharisees that these Pharisees were not interested in being instructed by Jesus. We have seen this over and over again in the Gospel of Matthew. Their agenda is not to be instructed by Jesus, but rather to instruct him or to at least try to find him out that his instruction is not correct. The purpose of their question is to trap him. Notice what is said here. The Pharisees in verse 3 come up to him and tested him. That's their agenda. Their agenda is to come to Jesus in order to test him. That rather it's an insincere motivation. It's a duplicitous motivation. It's not sincerely desiring to hear from Jesus. Rather it is an insincere attempt to test and trap and trick and tempt him. The Pharisees in this account are referring to Moses' instructions regarding divorce in Deuteronomy 24. I'm not going to take time to go back there right now. But to understand the cultural climate of the day and how they felt about divorce, and especially this, this Moses instruction, this Mosaic instruction in Deuteronomy 24, the rabbis, the teachers in Israel of Jesus' day, were divided over the reason for the divorce that's mentioned here in Deuteronomy 24 and the one that they bring up in this chapter. There were two schools of thought about this. There were the conservatives and there were what we might call the moderates or the liberals. Don't think politically here. The conservatives of Jesus' day would have taken the position that the uncleanness that's being spoken about in Deuteronomy 24 regarding the reason that one man can get a divorce from his wife or a woman may divorce her husband, that in this sense the uncleanness was adultery. But the liberals or the moderates of the day would have believed that it it could not be adultery because there was already a stated penalty for that sin in the Mosaic law code, namely execution. So the uncleanness had to be something less serious than adultery, they thought. The liberals basically concluded that the uncleanness was anything that displeased the husband. And so that is why the Pharisees come to him and ask, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? 
because that was one of the schools of thought of Jesus' day. This essentially meant that the husband could divorce his wife for any reason. And this more permissive interpretation seems to be the one that's holding sway among most of Jesus' contemporaries and the one that the Pharisees confront him about. But what Jesus wants to do in this section is to show them that Deuteronomy 24 and the Mosaic regulations that were put there were not intended to be prescriptive, that is, insist upon divorce, but rather descriptive, that is, to permit them. This command from Moses was never intended to condone divorce, but merely regulate divorce. And this seems to be the one thing Jesus' contemporaries misunderstood. So how did Jesus respond? Notice what he does in verse 4. He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Does he answer their question? No, not in one sense, but in one sense he does. See, anytime Jesus is approached insincerely, you're not going to get your questions answered. If you approach Jesus insincerely, you will not get your questions answered. Rather, you will be redirected into a more biblical way of thinking. And this is what he does. He steps back and he says, listen, listen, listen. Let me take you back to the beginning and the way God set it up. He set it up so that there was a man and a woman in paradise that were brought together in an institution that God created called marriage. And when he made them, and and when he brought them together, they were called to hold fast to one another. That is, cleave to one another, remain married to one another. And what God has joined together, not what people have done, but what God has done must not be separated by men. And so the question obviously becomes, well, then why did Moses institute this regulation? That's what we see in verse 7. Why then did Moses command one? Now, there's an interesting word. If you go back to Deuteronomy 24, Moses did not command divorce at all. He permitted divorce. But they understand this as reading and reading Deuteronomy 24, that he commands it. Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And Jesus answered, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. In other words, this wasn't God's plan. This wasn't God's intention. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Now, this is not primarily a sermon about divorce. So I won't be dealing with all the questions surrounding the issue. I will address a few of them. But I want you to notice how Jesus responds. He responds by taking them all the way back to the beginning and showing them that divorce was never ideal. While they thought that the Mosaic stipulations had superseded somehow God's creation purposes in Genesis and that they somehow replaced them with some new laws and regulations, Jesus makes clear that these laws were not put in place to replace the Creator's original intent, but merely in recognition of the reality of human hardness of heart. Now, I think we need to speak a word here regarding marriage and our culture's approach to it. Because as you know, unless you're living under a rock, literally, 
then marriage is being redefined all across of our, our all across our culture. But my question for you is, can marriage be redefined? It can be redefined if it's man's invention. Marriage is not man's idea. Marriage is God's idea, which means no matter what the law says, no matter what we as humans reinvent it and reimagine it to be, it will never be anything other than what God created it to be. So that's why we can speak of so-called same-sex marriage. Because same-sex marriage doesn't exist. It's not a reality. Now, it exists in our culture, but as a category of human thought from a biblical perspective, it doesn't exist because marriage is not something that men came up with. It's something that God came up with. So we don't get to tamper in any real sense, in any ultimate sense, in any redefining sense with what God made. So having said that, and having said this sermon not being primarily about divorce, but merely seeing what's going on behind these testing and tempting of the Pharisees with Jesus and this insincere approach to him, I will say this, and I've said it already, but I want to underscore it. Divorce is never God's ideal. Brothers and sisters, we must hold marriage the way the Bible calls us to hold it in Hebrews 13, in the highest reverence and honor as a sacred institution of God. It was instituted in paradise and was the chosen figure for the display of the mystical union between Christ and his church. But having said that and underscoring the value and honor and reverence owing to the institution of marriage, we must also realize that we live in a fallen, broken world where divorces happen even among God's people. And we must understand that divorce is qualifyingly permissible under a few circumstances in Scripture, namely adultery and abandonment. I don't have time to get into those exegetically, but those two forms of sin violate the, the very nature of the marital union. And that's why they are permissible for divorce. Adultery violates the one flesh union and abandonment violates the leave and cleave principle. That we are to cleave to each other and not abandon one another. But having said that, that divorce is qualifyingly permissible under a few circumstances, we must understand and embrace the reality that divorce is not the unpardonable sin. It is not the unpardonable sin. There are people in this room who have undergone a divorce. And they don't need to walk around feeling like they have committed the unpardonable sin. They haven't. But I will say this to those of us who are in that category. Those of us who have divorced and remarried, we must admit failure and repent of that sin that led to the dissolution of that first marriage or those other marriages. And vow in as much as God giving us grace and help to remain faithful in any subsequent relationships. A new marriage is not continuous adultery. Even though it may perhaps have begun in such a case. But nevertheless, Jesus is gracious. He forgives people, even in this very gospel, as we have seen, who have committed incredible sexual sin. And yes, who were divorced. And Jesus receives him. The Pharisees, the religious, would never receive such a person. 
But Christians should, and Christians must, because Jesus does. And to married brothers and sisters, or even those who are younger and who desire marriage, let me stress this, that Jesus views our marriages as very, very, very significant. And we are to treat them with honor and reverence and seek to cultivate them and bless them and make them fruitful and permanent and long-lasting. We're not to treat our marriages trivially. We're to invest in our marriages and keep them strong and be close to one another and work on our conflict and seek counsel when necessary and date one another and pursue one another And younger people here who desire marriage, you need to know that when you're thinking about that down the road, that Jesus puts a great weight upon that institution in your life. Such that the disciples here are blown away by what Jesus has said. And they say to him in verse 10, if such is the case, if if, if this is the way you view marriage as this permanent holding fast to one another, if this is the way you view marriage, it's better not to marry. They're getting the point. They understand the weight and significance that Jesus places upon marriage. But he says to them very realistically in verse 11, not everyone's able to receive this saying. In other words, for the vast majority of God's people, maybe not vast majority, I should say the majority of God's people, marriage is God's will for them. They're not able to receive a saying of permanent singleness from the lips of Jesus. And Jesus did not insist upon it, nor did the apostle Paul. Read 1 Corinthians 7. There's no higher blessing placed upon singleness, although there is a potential for greater kingdom fruitfulness in certain ways. Marriage is a wonderful, blessed institution for many of God's people, as is singleness. And again, I point you to 1 Corinthians 7 for more on that if you'd like to understand more about what the Bible says about both singleness and marriage. But Jesus is very realistic, he says. Not everyone can receive this saying, only those to whom it is given. And I could insert, by God. God is the one who gifts people with singleness. And some people are able in God's church to be free, to not have a desire to be married, and are able to devote themselves sacrificially and singularly in their devotion to the kingdom of Christ. That's why Jesus says here in verses 12, Verse 12, that there are eunuchs, that is single people who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. And so he is realistic. But the bigger issue this morning, having explained some of the divorce and marriage issues present in the text, The bigger issue this morning is why the Pharisees are approaching Jesus in this way and what is wrong about it. What's wrong about it is that they're trying to trap him. They're trying to test him. They're trying to tempt him. In fact, this word in verse 3 that Matthew uses describing the actions of the Pharisees that they came up to him to test him is the exact word used to describe what Satan is doing in Matthew 4. In Matthew 4, verse 1, then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tested by the devil. Same Greek word. We also saw it a couple of weeks ago in Matthew 16, 1, when it says, Now when the Pharisees and Sadducees came to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. 
And we'll see in a couple of weeks in Matthew 22, another test. Listen to this in verse 15 to 18 of Matthew 22. Then the Pharisees went out and planned together to entrap him with his own words. They sent to them their disciples along with the Herodians saying, Teacher, we know that you're truthful and teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. What an insincere statement from them. What a lie. You do not court anyone's favor because you show no partiality. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Verse 18, Jesus realized their evil intentions and said, Hypocrites, why are you testing me? See, Jesus does not abide in sincere approaches. He's not going to have it. Jesus does not like to be approached insincerely. Maybe some of you in here in this room are not yet Christians or you're not sure if you're Christians and you're kind of checking Jesus out. Well, it's important how you check out Jesus. Really important. Do you want to know Jesus? Do you want to get to know him personally and find out if he's true? Then you better not approach him in a way that's trying to test him or find him out. You better approach him with sincerity because if you're trying to trap him or test him, you're not going to get anywhere with him. People who try to discredit Jesus or undermine his authority are not received by him. People who seek to expose him as a fraud are arrogant and they will never meet. They will always meet his resistance, I should say. However, to the unbeliever who is open to Jesus and eager to hear from him, he has all the time in the world for you. He has all the time in the world for you. If we are open to his instruction, that's the issue. Are you open to Jesus' instruction or do you hear what he says and just dismiss it? Now, now, man, what a crazy religious guy. No, we must not come to Jesus insincerely, which means not seeking to listen to his instruction. But if we are willing to put ourselves under his voice, under his lordship, listen to him, hear him out, let him chafe against us and challenge us and prick us and move us and convict us. He will draw near to us. Number two, here's a second way not to come to Jesus. Don't come to Jesus supplementally. Supplementally. That's a strange word to choose, I know. Supplemental, as an add-on, as something in addition to your life. Okay? That's what we see with the rich young ruler. We're going to skip the middle part of the chapter and go down to verse 16. We'll come back to the account with the children in a moment. But notice how Jesus interacts with this rich young man. Well, the rich young man comes up to him, and you would think, wow, wouldn't you love to get this question from your kids or from a family member who doesn't yet believe in Jesus or a coworker or a friend? I mean, wouldn't you love this question? Imagine coming up tomorrow morning, you're at work. Hey, um, I know you're a Christian. What do you have to do to become a Christian? You would think, God's working in this person. This is awesome. And they, he may very well be. Or he may not be. We'll come to that in a little bit. Behold, a man comes up to him and says, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Now, this is where he gets off on the wrong foot. All right. He's coming to Jesus 
thinking, and we'll see more of this in a moment, thinking that he basically has it all together. He just needs to have a few more tips. So he's coming to Jesus in a very supplemental way. He's like, okay, I've done a lot of good deeds. I've got a good resume. I'm working a really, really good spiritual resume. But I just want to know, I'm not quite, I don't feel peace about that right now. And I'm, I'm really still struggling a little bit. So what is it that I'm missing? What, what's that one good deed I'm missing to inherit, to have eternal life? Jesus says to him very disarmingly, why do you call me good? No one's good, which should have registered in the rich young man's mind. I must not be either. But he doesn't think that. Now, almost everybody thinks that they're good, but Jesus says that nobody's good. Is that a saying you're willing to receive from Jesus' lips? Here's a test of whether you're really approaching him or not. Can you tolerate, can your conscience, can your reputation tolerate the fact that you're a sinner? who has disqualified yourself from eternal life. That's where it starts. That's where Jesus is trying to get this guy to go. But the the, the, the thing that keeps him from him is his good works. In fact, one old writer said that it's not so much our badness that keeps us from Jesus, it's our damnable good works that keep him keep us from Jesus. Far, far more people reject Jesus because of their goodness than their badness. And we see that with this rich young man. Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. So Jesus is going to start working on him now. Verse 18, he says, which ones? And Jesus plays into his hand and says, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not bear steal. Bear. He's basically running through some of the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20. The young man says to him, all these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus says, if you'd be perfect, go sell what you possess, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. And he goes away because he can't listen to that and can't, doesn't feel like he can obey it. So let me, let me say some things about what's going on in this rich young man's interaction with Jesus. First of all, Romans chapter 3, verses 10 and 23, teaches us that no one No one is able to measure up to the standard of God's glorious righteousness. Romans 3.10 says that no one is good, not even one. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, including this rich young man, including me, including all of us in this room this morning, and everyone who has ever lived on the face of the earth. Of course, we do not really believe that we are not good deep down in our natural state. We believe we do many good things. But here's our problem, friends. Our problem is that we judge ourselves by ourselves. But God does not judge us by grading on a curve by comparing us to other people. You must get this. This is a pop. This is the reason that people say everybody goes to heaven because they're grading on a curve. They look at that person's life and they's like, as far as I know, they never killed anybody. They're probably in heaven. I mean, there are worse people than them. But that's not the way God... See, that's judging ourselves by ourselves. We're using the wrong standard. God doesn't judge us by comparing us to other people. He judges us by comparing us to Him.
Obviously, no one in the world can be, a, can be judged to be good when measured against the correct standard, namely God's character, not another person's character. And what Jesus is trying to get this rich young man to do is own up to that. To acknowledge that he can't keep the commandments. Jesus has taught even the rich young man in this statement when he says no one is good. When he said in verse 17, you know, why do you call me good? No one is good. He, when he says that, he shows that we cannot measure up to God's standard of goodness. We cannot keep his commandments perfectly. And yet people cling to the hope that their good deeds will outweigh their bad deeds and they will go to paradise when they die. But a truly good deed is one that conforms to the word and law of God and is performed out of a heart that is in love with God. That's a good deed. Not opening a door for somebody. That's a nice civil act. Okay, and you should do it. But it's not gaining and currying favor with God and merit. A truly good deed, biblically defined, is one that is conformed to the law of God and proceeds out of love for God. And when we consider good deeds that way, and we consider furthermore that every single deed we do must be this kind of deed, if we are to make it to heaven by our own goodness, goodness, then it should be obvious that it's impossible for anyone to meet that standard. Because no one can perpetually, perfectly obey the law of God and do it with a heart of love for God from the time they're born to the time they die. And until we understand that we have no goodness of our own to present before God, we do not understand how desperately we need Jesus. If we think we can merit eternal life without the perfect righteousness of Christ, we do not see our need for Christ, which is why it is so heartbreaking to see this man say, all these I have kept, what more do I lack? What kind of self-deception is this guy under? Did he not hear Jesus when he taught on the mountain the deeper significance of the law of God? That it's not just not it's not just not stabbing a person to death that doesn't violate or that, that that's the only violation of the commandment to murder, but hatred in our hearts toward others is a violation of that commandment? Or that literal, physical adultery is the only way that we break the commandment of adultery rather than staring at pornography? Or that bearing false witness about someone is not just lying about them in court, but spreading gossip and untruth about them to our friends and neighbors and family? I mean, none of us, none of us have been able to perpetually and continually keep the commandments of God from the heart all of our lives. But Jesus still loves this man. He looks at him and in other texts that share in other gospels that also record this account, it says looking at him, he loved him. And he looks him in the eyes and he says, okay, you say you kept all the commands. Here's the first commandment. Have no other gods before me. Now go sell everything you have. Come follow me. And then, then the game gets switched because now he realizes, wait, I don't want to do that. I've got lots of stuff and money, and I like it. Right. 
you have another God in front of me, before me. And he goes away sorrowful because now he realizes if I haven't kept the first commandment, I've kept any of them. I'm ruined. And rather than turn in repentance toward Jesus, Jesus, help me. I don't know why I'm an idolater. I don't know why I'm stuck to my stuff. I don't know why I have to have this and feel like this is a trade-off. You're offering me yourself and your kingdom forever. And I want this earthly life for a period of time that I don't even know how long it will last because God is the one who created me. He gives life. He takes it away. I don't know why I sense this is a reputable trade-off. Help me, Jesus. No, he just says... And walks away. And that's tragic. This is tragic. Jesus says very much right here. If Jesus is not Lord of all, he will not be Lord at all. We cannot approach Jesus supplementally. We either take him as complete Lord of our lives to govern every decision we make and to submit to him in everything he says, not perfectly, we're we're submitting to a savior after all, but nonetheless, truly and authentically giving him our hearts, he will not take us. He's either Lord of all or not Lord at all. And so what we learn from this, brothers and sisters, is that we are hardwired, are we not, to rely on our obedience to God to try to get God to like us and accept us? Isn't that our hardwiring by nature? I mean, that's exactly what this rich young man demonstrates to us. He is us. He is just like us. Thinking that we can get favor with God by our obedience to God. But here's an, another sad lesson that we learn from this man's life. We learn from this person that a person can desire salvation and not get it. They can at one level desire to have eternal life, but because that desire for eternal life is not coupled with a desire to submit to Jesus, they don't have eternal life. You can't have Jesus as Savior and not have Jesus as Lord. And there are tons of people who claim, well, Jesus is my Savior. Well, what decision did he impact in your life this week? How has he affected your the way you spend your time and your money and your energy and your focus and your passions and your position and your pursuits and all of these things? How has Jesus impacted that? How is Jesus changing you? Good feelings alone, friends, are not evidence of the grace of God. You can know the truth intellectually, have your conscience pricked, have affection for Jesus awakened, be concerned about your spiritual condition, shed some tears, and all come up short of conversion. People who refer to Jesus as simply a teacher, which this man does, and nothing more, reveal that they can't be saved yet. Because Jesus is not just a good moral teacher. He's Savior and Lord, our only option. Now, let me press home as a seeking to be a faithful pastor to you that we need to be very careful that we are not too dismissive of this man and the way what how he deals with his stuff And the way we deal with our stuff might just be two totally different things.
while wealth is a blessing from God, it can also be a curse. Because it can become the very thing that prevents a person from entering the kingdom of God, which it does right here with this man. Why? Why money? Why stuff? Well, here's a couple of reasons. Wealth produces a sense of self-sufficiency. Does it not? Does it not? Do you not feel self-sufficient? Don't stand out. Don't sit out there and lie to me with that face. You know it does. You know that there is a level of self-sufficiency that comes with a level of prosperity. And I'm not talking about 15 homes. I'm talking about a car that works and grocery stores that you can spend money in and all that stuff. Basic stuff. And the trick with money is that the more we have of it, not necessarily in, in, in volume, but just the, the more it's able to meet our needs, the more the less we depend on God. Here's a second one. The acquisition of wealth and the maintenance it requires can prove so all-absorbing, can it not? Wealth forces us to keep our eyes on our investments, our businesses, our responsibilities, our purchases. In other words, being wealthy takes a lot of time and energy. We start checking the status of our investments and reading up on our businesses or just keeping track of our checking accounts in place of spending sustained time in prayer and the word. And this is why Jesus said we can't serve both God and mammon because the service of both require religious devotion. One's going to crowd out the other. No one can devote themselves to the accumulation of greater wealth and at the same time devote themselves to serving God. I tried to say that very carefully. No one can devote themselves, devote themselves to the accumulation, accumulation of greater, of greater wealth. And at the same time, devote themselves to serving God. Every Christian should ask this question. How much of my thinking, how much of my planning, how much of my effort, how much of my concern is about money as distinct from the things of God? Do you have the courage to ask yourself that question or ask others to ask you that question? So wealth can produce a sense of self-sufficiency. The acquisition of wealth and its maintenance can prove to be all absorbing. Thirdly, the acquisition of wealth can become obsessive. Not only can it become all absorbing, it can get to the point where it is never satisfied. Let me read you a couple of quotes regarding this. Here's from Tim Keller. As a pastor, I've had people come to me to confess that they struggle with almost every kind of sin. Almost. I cannot recall anyone ever coming to me and saying, quote, I spend too much money on myself. I think my greedy lust for money is harming my family, my soul, and people around me, end quote. Never, and I've never heard it. Ever. And I, and I trust Keller's been in the ministry a lot longer than I have. Why? Why? Because greed hides itself from the victim. The money, God's modus operandi, includes blindness to our own hearts. Why can't anyone, Keller says, in the grip of greed see it? The counterfeit God of money uses powerful sociological and psychological dynamics. Everyone tends to live in a particular socioeconomic bracket. 
You don't compare yourself to the rest of the world. You compare yourself to those in your bracket. The human heart always wants to justify itself, and this is one of the easiest ways. You say, quote, I don't live as well as him or her or them. My means are modest compared to theirs, end quote. You can reason and think like that no matter how lavishly you are living. As a result, most Americans think of themselves as middle class, and only 2% call themselves upper class. But the rest of the world is not fooled. When people visit here from other parts of the globe, they are staggered to see the level of materialistic comfort that the majority of Americans have come to view as a necessity. Jesus warns people far more often about greed than about sex, yet almost no one thinks they're guilty of it. Therefore, we should all begin with a working hypothesis that this could easily be a problem for me. If greed hides itself so deeply, no one should be confident that it is not a problem for them. How can we recognize and become free from the power of money to blind us? It's a faithful word. Here's one from David Platt. It's worth noting two common errors in handling this passage. On one hand, some people universalize it, saying that every follower of Jesus should sell everything they have and give the proceeds to the poor. But we know this is not true based on what we see in the rest of the New Testament. Not every disciple of Jesus is divested of his possessions, for Scripture indicates that some of Jesus' disciples still had homes, John 19, 27, John 20, verse 10, and they still had fishing boats, John 21, 3. While a number of women provided for Jesus and his 12 disciples out of their own means, Luke 8, 1 to 3. So this passage clearly isn't saying that a Christian cannot own private property or possessions. On the other hand, our usual tendency is to minimize this passage. Jesus does call some of his followers to sell everything they have and give it to the poor. And the reality is that he could call any of us to do the same. Some have suggested that the rich man in this passage just needed to be willing to sell all of his possessions. But that's not what Jesus meant, or else that's what he would have said. He didn't tell the man merely to be willing to sell everything he possessed, but to go sell your belongings and give to the poor. These were not options for this man to consider. They were commands for this man to obey. We must not dilute the call of Christ, for his call to salvation demands radical surrender. One more. R.T. France, commentator on the Gospel of Matthew, says, The demands of discipleship will vary for different individuals and situations. But listen to this. They will never be less than total availability to the claims of Jesus, however differently these apply in practice. Then listen to this quote. That Jesus did not command all of his followers to sell their possessions gives comfort only to the kind of people to whom he would issue that command. Did you hear me? Are you sort of relieved that Jesus didn't command you to do that? Right? This is where I'm challenged this week. Am I sort of relieved that he didn't say to all of his disciples, anybody who come after me, sell everything you have and, you know, give it to the poor? That's where this, that's why we need a command like this. Because we need to be shocked. Don't we? We need to be shocked out of the reality of greed and its effects to blind us and keep us from the priorities of the kingdom of God. That Jesus did not command all his followers to sell all their possessions gives comfort only to the kind of people to whom he would issue that command. May the Lord help us to be open to his instruction and scan our hearts for any evidence of rich, young mannishness that still lives in all of us. Because I'm for sure 
that as Western Christians who live in a materialistic culture, we need this word from our Savior. And we need to revisit it quite a bit. Let me move on quickly then to number three. Come to Jesus dependently. We've seen don't come to him. Don't come to him insincerely. Don't come to him supplementally. Come to him dependently. And that's what we see in the example given for us in the children being brought to Jesus in verses 13 through 15. Assuming that parents are bringing their kids to Jesus and they're wanting to be pray, they're wanting the children to be prayed over and blessed. The disciples consider that to be a bad use of Jesus' time, or at least a lesser important use of Jesus' time. And they're trying to dissuade the people from doing that. Don't disturb him now. He's busy. He's got a lot of stuff to do. You know, he's got to preach and heal and all that stuff. But he's like, no, 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 no. Are those kids? Get those kids over to me. And he brings the kid children to him, and he says, let the little children come to me. So the disciples are rebuking the people. Jesus rebukes the disciples says, you got it wrong again, guys. This is not the way my kingdom operates. Let those kids come to me. And he says, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and he went away. Come to Jesus dependently. Why do I say that? Last week, Matthew chapter 18, Pastor Jonathan preached on this passage. And he said in verse 4, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So said in verse three says, truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Contrary to the Pharisees and the rich man, children are an excellent object lesson in the kind of humility and faith that Jesus finds so attractive and acceptable. Now, before I move to the spiritual application of our dependence being like little children, I want to underscore the value of physical children to Jesus. Jesus quite literally laid his hands on children and received them because they are very important to him. And we must care about children like he cares about children. While they're still in the womb, while they don't have a family, we must care about children because Jesus cares about children. Listen to what J.C. Ryle says. Let us draw encouragement from these verses to attempt great things in the religious instruction of children. Let us begin from their very earliest years to deal with them as having souls to be lost or saved. Let us strive to bring them to Christ. Let us make them acquainted with the Bible as soon as they can understand anything. Let us pray with them and pray for them and teach them to pray for themselves. The seed sown in infancy is often found after many days. Mom and dad's. Please invest in your children spiritually. Please pour yourself into them in the Bible and prayer and discipleship and not just in school and extracurricular activities. Please do that. Invest in them. Give them your heart and your time. Pray with them. Pray for them. Instruct them. Be an example of godly living to them. And not just you, but we as a whole church come alongside all of the families in our church and seek to help them shepherd their kids, which is why we believe in children's ministry and we love children's ministry and we have classes for kids and ministries for kids. Take advantage of our midweek children's ministry. Parents, if you have younger children especially, 
Don't bring your college students in here unless they're in town and they want to help serve in the children's ministry. We'd love for them to do that. But invest yourself in them and take advantage of that for their instruction. Churches should think through how they can most effectively pass the gospel on to the next generation. And not just our children. We're to care for other children, both in our neighborhood and around the world, which is why this church loves adoption. We love adoption because it's what God did with us. And it's what he's called his church to be and do. He doesn't, just like he doesn't call the, every person to sell their own possessions and give to the poor, neither does he call every family to adopt, but your heart should care about it. And you should be invested in it and eager to see it go forward. Through our sacrificial giving and labor, we can see children in poverty escape physical death and begin to thrive. Even better, we can see the gospel made available to children who would not otherwise hear Jesus Christ. Every child is important to him. And to the little children in this room, would you listen to Pastor Mark for just a second? Little kids, I want you to know that you can come to Jesus right now. You don't have to wait till you're older. You can pray now. You can read the Bible now. You can trust Jesus now. You can say, I'm sorry for your sins now. You can thank Jesus now. You can do all that. You can be headed to heaven right now at your age. If you understand your need for Jesus. And you say, I can't do it. I've, my parents have had to correct me a hundred times for the things I've done wrong. I know that I'm a sinner. I know I'm not perfect. I know I've broken God's law. I know I can't even explain it. I don't even know. I don't even want to do it sometimes. And I do it because I just, I'm a sinner. I'm sin. And the only one that can fix that is Jesus. And I'm going to go to him and I'm going to pray to him and I'm going to rely on him. He's my savior. You can do that, kids. You can do it at a very young age and Jesus will lay his hands on you and he will bless you. He will bless you because he loves you and you're important to him and he cares about you. And he doesn't just care about the big people and the grown-ups and all the people around the world that have never heard. He cares about you in a Christian family going to school or maybe you're not even in school yet. He loves you and he cares about you. And this story is in the Bible to tell you at your age that Jesus loves you and cares about you too. And not just all the big people who are here. Craig Blomberg says, Jesus' special concern for these children suggests that Christians should highly prize their young people. Child evangelism should remain a priority, especially in light of children's particular openness to the gospel. Believers ought to treat their children as special recipients of God's love even prior to their conscious commitment to Christ rather than emphasizing their lostness. Ceremonial expressions of the value of our children are also appropriate as with infant dedications or with some form of spoken blessing. It's appropriate. It's fine. When we want to have more infant dedications here in the future... And have those like we did for Uday and Melinda and, and, and bless their children, bless their little Uday. We want to bless other families as well as a church saying, this is a little child. It's precious to Jesus. Let's put him in the lap of Christ together as a church and pray down God's blessing and saving power to visit that little one. Well, I've got to quit, but let me conclude with this. Unlike the Pharisees, who didn't see him as the truth, we see Jesus as his people, as the truth, as the one whose mouth drips the instruction of God. 
We renounce our suspicion and we submit ourselves to his teaching. Unlike the rich young man, we see him as the life. We renounce our goodness, our perceived righteous record, and allow Jesus to dismantle us from the inside out and to give us his perfect righteousness through faith alone by just asking for it and relying upon it. And like children, we see him as the way. Matthew 11 teaches us the way that we're supposed to respond to Jesus. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Not all those who got it together and just need a little supplement and a little add-on. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me. Don't be suspicious of me. Take my instruction upon yourself and learn from me. For I'm gentle and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That we come dependently. And you know what, brothers and sisters? This is where we should rest this morning. And this is where I'm going to hold off for the benediction in just a moment. So worship team, please come forward. But I want you to know that if you have come to Jesus in dependence like that, like that of a little child, humble and broken and needy and crying out to him for mercy that that was a work of almighty God in your life. Jesus said, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easy for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, if salvation depended upon man... It's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And we sit here this morning as a church, evidence of the possibility of God facing the impossibility of man. There's no way we ever would have chose Jesus. No way you ever would have had your eyes open. No way you ever would have been inclined above, above toward Jesus versus the American dream. No way you would have been inclined toward that had not God done the seemingly impossible in your life. Let's stand together and let's worship him for it.